gospel lesson today and our sermon text comes to us from the good news of St. Luke, the 15th chapter, verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the gospel of our Lord. Pray with me briefly. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that it is said to be good news. Good news that we need today, each one of us, for life and for health, for flourishing, for salvation. Help us to hear from you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here we are kicking off our fall activity, our full fall ministries for the first time in a few years. And I'm sure all of you have been busy getting ready for back to school or going back to the office, perhaps, or just that kind of electricity in the air as people do come back to the city, that kind of scattering and gathering that happens uh, here in July and August, and maybe you had a busy summer. Now, my summer was extremely full, uh, seeing family, doing meaningful work here, uh, connecting with people, sending two kids off to college. It was a lot, and I've seen some of you have been traveling and busy, and I wonder if any, in the midst of any of this activity, you ever stop and think, wait, what am I doing this for? What's the point of this activity? For example, even in mundane situations, any of you ever made your bed in the morning and thought, what is the point? of this. I'm going to get right back in it tonight. So, and no one's coming over today. What's the point, right? Maybe you have just started class and it's pretty remedial and you're like, remedial math, really? They have calculators now. What is the point of this? Or maybe you're moving your car in alternate sidecar parking and you're wondering, you know, half the cars never move and my street never really gets clean. So what's the point? What are we doing this for? And I think this is a good question. We asked it ourselves as pastors this last month. You know, we used to just do things a certain way and say, let's get all this stuff and go and recruit everyone and, and then try to keep recruiting and then try to keep our little ministries going instead of asking, do these ministries serve a point? And what would it mean to have purposeful and deep ministries? I think that's important for all of us to ask questions about all of your activity. I spend a lot of time in the ocean whenever I can, and uh, this summer I got to do a lot of activities in the water. 
And I found myself often, there'd be all this noise and there's maybe jet skis going by or there are people yelling as you're surfing or there's noise and uh, you know, JBL speakers. And every once in a while, I'd just go underneath into that white noise under the ocean and kind of be submerged and look up and see even the activity up there on the surface. And I think this is a good picture of what it means to go underneath the surface sometimes. Not just what are we doing or what's next or how are we going to do it, but why? Why are we doing what we're doing? This should be the question of all our activity. And I mean that both in individual levels, but also scientific, political, religious. All the activity that we can do together, why? And this is the one question that many of us began to ask during the pandemic. When the things that we're always busy doing, business as usual, was shut down, you start to think, well, why was I doing all of or some of those things? Maybe there's something deeper. Maybe there's a deeper purpose that I can connect to. Start asking questions like, why am I here? Why are we here? What am I actually made for? What's my purpose? What's my point? One of my favorite writers, Walker Percy, said this, I have learned that the most important difference between people is those for whom life is a quest and those for whom it is not. He's getting at the same thing, to, to get on that search for meaning, to be searching for something that's buried somewhere that you maybe don't know how to connect to that you've lost, some kind of meaning, a point, a purpose. If you remember nothing else from this sermon, I'm going to give you one tip. Uh, how many of you know who Nick Cave is? Not very many people. Okay, look, a handful. He's a sort of multi-hyphenate uh, artist, but uh, most famously known as a singer-songwriter and also a writer and uh, many other things. But he's a sage type. He's lived a long life. He lost a young son um, some years ago. And so he just sends out a weekly newsletter. It's called The Red Hand Files. And he just answers people's questions and kind of ruminates. Um, he is a religious person. I think he's very spiritual. He loves Jesus. I'm not sure that he would consider himself a Christian. And so he doesn't always write from that perspective. But listen to this. He got this letter in the mail this week. I'm going to read you part of his response. Someone named Bo from Essex, England, wrote him and said, Nick, what is the point of life? He wrote, Dear Bo, to understand the point in life, we must first understand what it is to be human. It seems to me that the common agent that binds us all together is loss, and so the point in life must be measured in relation to that loss. Our individual losses can be small or large. They can be accumulations of losses barely registered on a singular level or full-scale cataclysms. Losses absorbed into our bodies from the moment we are cast from the womb until we end our days subsumed by it to become the essence of loss itself. We ultimately become the grief of the world. Having collected countless losses throughout our lifetime, these losses are many-faceted and chronic, both monstrous and trivial. They are losses of dignity, of agency, of trust, of spirit, of direction or faith, and of course, the loss of ones we love. They are daily convulsive disappointments or great historical injuries that cast their shadows across the human predicament, reminding us of the stunning potential of our own loss of humanity. We are capable of the greatest atrocities and the deepest sufferings, all culminating in a vast collective grief. This is our shared condition. And yet, 
Happiness and joy continue to burst through this mutual condition. Life, it seems, is full of an insistent, systemic, and irrepressible beauty. But these moments of happiness are not experienced alone. Rather, they are almost entirely relational and are dependent on a connection to the other, be it people or nature or art or God. This is where meaning establishes itself within the connectedness nested in our shared suffering. I believe that we are meaning-seeking creatures, and these feelings of meaning, relational and connective, are almost always located within kindness. Kindness is the force that draws us together, and this bow is what I think I'm trying to say, that despite our collective state of loss and our potential for evil, there exists a great network of goodness knitted together by countless everyday human kindnesses. He goes on a little bit longer, but then he signs off, love, Nick. He's such a beautiful writer, you should sign up for his e-newsletter. <laughs> but he says that the point of life, essentially, is connection. Connection to others, to this world in its brokenness and its beauty, and to God, to the source of all being. I think he's right. I think this text will show that. I think the Bible talks about that. I think faith talks about that. And what I want us to see this morning as we dig in in just a moment is that when you, in all your loss, in all your brokenness, in all your hurt, in all your shared humanity, you bring the real you, you connect to your deeper self underneath the surface, not just your frivolity, not just your worries, not just your anxieties, not just your activity, but the deeper self that is you, that is your soul, that is within you. When you are able to connect with that and then connect that to the source of life and connect that to one another and connect that meaningfully to the world, then you will experience joy. You will experience joy. Joy, yeah, it's kind of a religious word. It seems to be mostly used in Christian contexts because it doesn't really have a pure equivalent. It's like happiness, but it's not, of course. It's different. It doesn't go away because it's not based on feelings. It's not based on circumstances. It's possible to live in such a way that you can't even lose joy. Consider, for example, this. The Apostle Paul had been beaten and left for dead and all sorts of other atrocities, and then he's put unjustly in a jail in a town called Philippi, and he wrote a book to, or sorry, he's in jail, and he writes the book to the church in Philippi, and the letter that he writes to them is known as the book of joy. That he is talking about how joyful he is and how joyful they ought to be, and they ought to rejoice in everything, even their sufferings, even in his imprisonment. He wrote elsewhere, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We should want this particular type of joy. It seems to be something that can't be extinguished, even in the midst of sorrow. And this is a far cry from what we typically try to get out of life. Usually want to see success or praise or belonging, better things, perhaps even just entertainment. Eugene Peterson, another pastor and writer, talks about how we often try to get joy through entertainment, collective entertainment of sports or even political rallies or whatever it may be, art. And he points out that, of course, these kinds of joy never penetrate our lives. They never get deep down. Their effects are very temporary, a few minutes, a few hours, a few days at most, because we run out of money and the joy trickles away. 
We don't seem to be able to make and keep ourselves joyful. Or perhaps you go the other way and you try to empty your life of things that could cause trouble. We picture joy is coming when all the annoyances go away. And Peterson again says, a common but futile strategy for achieving joy is trying to eliminate things that hurt. Get rid of pain by numbing the nerve ends. Get rid of insecurity by eliminating risks. Get rid of disappointments by depersonalizing your relationships. See, this kind of approach, this attitude, is what persuades us to see our spouse as our enemy, our children as a hindrance, our friends as inadequate and unhelpful in our search for joy. Joy seems elusive and yet necessary. And the scriptures talk about joy as something that we can not attain, but we can receive. We can receive it as a gift. We can open up our hands and have it offered to us. We can have it infused into us, if you will. We can have it given to us and then never taken away, no matter what the circumstances are. If that's true, we said what joy is and what is joy and how do we get it? What's it based on? Let's say a few things here in a row, in a different way, just kind of. Joy, it seems, and I know this is redundant, but joy, it seems to be, is enjoying right relationship with God, others, this world, your deeper self. Being able to enjoy being in a right and good relationship with God and others and self and the world. Because see, if there's one thing we're going to learn from this text as we kind of fly through it, is that God is a God of connection. That's what he is. And because he's a God of connection, he's a God of joy. When we connect to him, we connect to others. When we connect to him and others, we connect to this world and this spreads joy. It can hardly be contained. It just goes through us from God into us and to one another. And it means that we begin to know God more truly and more in more reality. And we know one another and ourselves more truly and in reality. This is what it means to experience joy, right relationship, love with one another. And so how do you get it? How do you access the spring of life? And you have to know that you won't be able to quench the thirst of others and their need for joy. And all of their strategies for trying to get it in ways that bring harm to themselves and others or just dry you up. You can't quench the thirst of others if you are dehydrated. And so we won't have right, lasting, fulfilling, and joy-bringing relationships with others if we don't have it with God. We have to know and experience him truly first. He is the wellspring, the source of joy by connecting to him. And so let me ask you here. All of us here are people of faith of some sort. You might have faith in yourself or faith in the evolutionary process or that things will still be the same way tomorrow as they are today and so you can keep going about your duties. But all of us have faith. Whatever kind of person of faith you are and if you're investigating Christianity this morning or you're brought here by a friend for the potluck or whatever, just think, what is your actual picture of God? What's he like? What's his essence? And it's a little hard to talk about God's personality because personalities can also be personas and those sorts of things, but just for the sake of thinking about him, his character, his personality, what is he like? And what I want to suggest to you is that God 
is a God of bottomless and endless, unquenchable joy. He is a joyful God. The psalmist says this in Psalm 16, I have set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand, and so I shall not be shaken, and therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My body also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to death, O Lord. You will not let the one you love see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. God is the real source of joy in this life because he is joyful. He is joy itself. When you know that center of your life, the center of the world, and you know that this is a joyful Lord who is for you, then even real events of sadness and tragedy can take on a new light and a new hope. And joy won't need to be then something you reproduce or drum up or hold on to. There won't be pressure to make it happen. It's not a work of yours. It's a grace. It's a gift. And you will turn your face back to the source of joy, God, and you will hear again that he is a joyful God and that he turns sorrow into joy, that all your weeping will turn into reaping of joy and laughter. See, joy is not a rule to keep for a Christian or an attitude to try to get worked up within you. It's the overflow of what has been given to you when you are connected to God. Let's see how this works in our text again, just to remind you a little bit. There's a couple stories here that Jesus tells, stories of people searching for something lost. This is stories of people on a quest, searching for something deeper, something hidden, something lost, and then rejoicing upon reunion with that thing. The first one is a man with 99 sheep, and he loses one, and it goes off into the wilderness, and he leaves the sheep to go find the one that is now alone, away from the herd, and disconnected, and vulnerable, and about to be attacked, perhaps, or lost, or not fed. He says, when he comes home, he calls, and then he finds him, he brings him home, and the man says, Jesus says, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says, rejoice with me, I have found my sheep that was lost. Connecting not only with the sheep, but with friends now through a party, rejoicing together, spreading the joy. And then there's a woman looking for a coin in the couch cushions. Maybe some of you are coin collectors, and you know what happens if you had a perfect collection, and you lose the one, and now the rest aren't as valuable. And she's looking for this coin, and she understands its value to her, even if it's just sentimental value. She's looking, she's turning over the couch cushions, looking everywhere, shaking things, going through the closets, trying to find a coin. And when she has found it, he says, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, rejoice with me. I have found the coin that I had lost. I'm reconnected with it. I've been reunited to it, and so I want to reconnect with you, and we want to rejoice together. And Jesus says to him, kind of an ironic question, which one of you wouldn't do this? Well, the fact is, what he's suggesting is kind of ridiculous. This man leaves 99 sheep for one. That is not a good investment, right? That's not good risk containment. She's asking people to come have a party. She must be setting out brownies and tea and whatever else they had in ancient Near East, their version of it, right? 
she's probably spending the cost of the coin to have them over. It's a little bit ridiculous. It's supposed to be strange to the ears of the first hearers. What we have here is someone going for a sheep, an extraordinary risk for the hope of a seemingly modest success, or the coin, an extraordinary celebration over a seemingly modest win. But there's one more seeking the loss that's going on here, which is, of course, the context that Jesus tells these stories in, is that he is there with the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious people who have a lot of activity and really want to protect it. They've compromised with Rome and they, they get to do what they want and they're in charge and they tell people what they can do and can't do. And this is what is bringing them satisfaction on the surface of their activity. But here is Jesus hanging out with all the wrong people, the tax collectors, the despised people that had teamed up with Rome to tax you and take your money and give it to those evil Romans. And sinners, these people, the totally immoral, the messed up, they're the ones drawing near to connect to Jesus because they sense something. They sense something they are so thirsty for. They are searching and they sense it in Jesus. They're going toward the source of this living water. They're gathered near him. And the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling and saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Oh. And so Jesus as the Son of God here, through his stories, and now through his life, an enacted, lived-out parable, if you will, he is telling us that God, through him, is seeking for something that God has lost. And they are people. The so-called sinners and outcasts, the ones people try to put in the margins, the ones we want to have nothing to do with in our service our surface activity and our busyness and our business and our homes and our friends and our socializing and our networking, all of those who we need to put out in the, you know, put them back in the closet over there, put them under the rug, let's sweep it. All of those who are too poor, too sick, too addicted, too messed up, too black, too old, too mean, too strange. People that wander off alone from the herd in a different step and find themselves vulnerable and in danger and perhaps a little bit of scared, scared. People who are tossed in the back of the closet or swept under the rug. And he says to them, which one of you goes seeking and searching? Which one of you doesn't do that, right? And the answer is, of course, we don't. The point here is that God, through Jesus, has taken an extraordinary risk for the hope of a seemingly modest success. Jesus is making an extraordinary celebration over a seemingly modest win, these ne'er-do-wells around his table. But he tells them a truth about God. He says, just like this man and this woman in my stories, and just like what I'm doing now, I tell you, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner out there, one of these people who have wandered, who changes their mind, repents, and comes back. There is more joy over that than 99 supposedly right people who don't have any need to change their minds and come home like you seem to think you are. And in verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who changes his mind. Jesus is telling us that not only is God a God of joy, but his entire purpose, his point his mission and his desire and his joy 
is to search for you and for me and for all who suspect that they might be lost. This is what brings him joy. This is the purpose and point of his life. We wanted to ask this question today on fall kickoff as we begin. We have new members. We have a potluck. Next week, you'll begin to hear a lot more details in the news this week and in our e-news and then in the, in the service next Sunday. You'll hear a lot about the activity that we're going to be doing. And we're going to start a new sermon series talking about the virtues that we want to see God build in our church, the virtues of welcome and worship and witness. And we'll have a lot of things like, what does it mean to be a church of welcome? And what can we do? And who can we be? What does it mean to be a church of worship together, but also in your whole life? And what does it mean to witness to God's ongoing kingdom in the world? And what are we going to do to be faithful to that? What I wanted you to hear this morning as we begin that activity is to take a moment to go beneath the surface, to go deeper, and to remember that all of our activity needs to flow out of the deeper purpose and mission of God, that all of our activity needs to have a point. And that point is to connect with God deeply in his joy, to participate with him as he reclaims each one of us over and over again, week after week, day after day, to reconnect to one another and to say, let's get together and celebrate this joyful reunion, this connection. And yes, in our actual lives with our children and friendship and parents and relationships and jobs and parties and celebrations, to say, look, I used to miss this sheep. I used to miss this coin. I used to miss this situation. And it's home. Let's celebrate together our joys as well as our sorrows. In John 15, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so when you were one of the 99 grumbling Pharisees, is our church really doing this? Is, my rep, is God really asking me to do that? Hear what the Pharisees needed to hear, that we are called to humble ourselves, to remember that we ourselves are lost, and that there is a diligent, joyful God seeking us every moment of our day to connect with us, that he's always there searching and waiting to put you on his shoulders and carry you home again. And when you're lost, remember that God is constantly searching for you and that he finds what he seeks. He has sought you. He is seeking you now. He has promised that he will attach you to him as the vine and give his life to you and you will bear fruit. And the fruit of that spirit will be joy. And then we are called to be like the man and the woman in the parable and like Jesus himself to find joy where God finds joy in reaching out to the lost and the forgotten in word and deed to join the party with one another across boundaries, starting with this meal at the table in just a moment and the potluck feast afterwards. In all of our activity, Jesus is telling us that we can have joy no matter what we experience as individuals and as a community, that this is the very point of your life, to have a deeper connection with God, yourself, with 
others and the world. And that as you do this, it will be a joyful, ongoing, moving, traveling, Sundays, Mondays through Saturdays kind of reunion party. A gathering of people coming to rejoice. This is the point of all our activity and of your life. Come to the party and rejoice this morning. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Oh, 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 oh.